I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. The new 52, number one action comics, Ugh. Grant Morrison. <laughs> I like what he was trying to do in that one. I, well, you know, what pisses me off about that is they had, um, what's his face? They had uh, Marv Wolfman doing Superman at that point, and like, he's gone on record saying, nobody would tell me what the fuck was going on, and I was writing a book that directly correlated with the book, and I'm like... You got involved in a project with Grant Morrison. You should have known, but, like, did nobody warn you? Yeah. Like, mm. Grant Morrison is the drug trip of people. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing with mm. the New 52 is I've never seen something that is so micromanaged but also so unplanned. Yes. It's just a clusterfuck. Mm. Oh. Except for that Azarella Wonder Woman run. That's, it that was great. Is Grant Morrison the one who did uh, mm. Invisibles? Is that yes. What it's I, Grant yeah. Morrison is the one that I – shit you not, I was uh, – I was watching him do a speech, and I don't know where it was, about um, Grant Morrison, after he got the money from doing Invisibles, he uh, decided that he would basically create his own, f- I don't know how he put it, like he create his own fetish, like, a, like, a, like this sounds like Alan Moore territory, <laughs> that, the, that he would go to uh, t- the Himalayas to eat acid... To try to contact aliens from another dimension? But what you're talking about is a very specific instance uh, in Grant Morrison's life that he calls the Katmandu abduction experience. Katmandu, yes. And a lot of the Invisibles is uh, – this is responsible for a lot of the Invisibles. Grant Morrison, um, there is a book called Our Sentences Up, which is a companion. Have you read The Invisibles? No. Okay. Holy shit. It is um, – I, I don't necessarily know that Grant Morrison did anything better, but it is incredibly mm. dense. It is really. Paul, have you read The Invisibles? Yep. Okay. Oh so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, it is basically basically it's it's if you got Grant Morrison's brain and you shook everything out of it. Yeah, this is what and, would come out, and put it on the page because it's kind of like here's a list of all the things that I'm interested in. And I'm just going to weave them together into a nar- into a narrative of sorts. Well, and it's very spirit specifically his like mm. grimoire. It's halfway between mm. like a grimoire and a manual for instructions on how to reach enlightenment and also extraterrestrial aliens, <laughs> and a treatise on the warped nature of space time and uh, reincarnation. It's like. We were going to try and do a series for for views, and we were going to talk about yeah. the book and this companion book, which is really gives great insight. I don't know if you've read it, Paul, but mm. if, if you're interested in The Invisibles, mm. I would highly recommend picking it up. You can get it on Amazon. It's uh, not expensive. Definitely check it out. Yeah. Um, and it gives a lot of insight into what's going on, and it points out a lot of things that I had missed. But mm. it's, it's just Grant Morrison is a truly – he's – Fucking insane. He's done yeah. a lot of drugs, <laughs> and he believes that he was taken from Kathmandu by aliens that exist on the fourth or fifth or eighteenth dimension, and shown the true nature of time and the true nature of life. 
And so he comes back and he fucking Wait, was him. his is his thing about that uh, we're all these worms that are existing in a pattern of where we move throughout four dimensional space? And it's... our and and I, I I thought the illustration the way he illustrated was like you are a worm if you if you consider each moment through time as a snapshot you make one long worm, you know? Mm. Like and I was like that's a really I... weird way to conceive <laughs> yeah. of it. Yeah, Grant Morrison uh, is a mixed bag of a person, isn't he? <laughs> mixed bag of yeah, he's he has that drug trip quality, and he he really is, in terms of his output, very uneven to me. He's real hit and miss. Mm. That there are a lot of things like his Batman run is one of those things mm. that if you explain it to me on paper, I'm on board. That it's a unified theory of Batman that he wants to take every bonkers everything that Batman has ever done or any way he's been portrayed. Put it all in continuity and somehow make it work, including like Batmite, the Batman of Zorinar, mm. who's a alien Batman who wears a yellow and purple costume. Um, <laughs> he tries to put all of it into one big ball, scrunch it up, and then make a coherent story out of it. Oh, scratch that. He tries to tell a story out of it. <laughs> um, yeah, he's not mm. really concerned with coherence <laughs> at and all. It's mm. hard because on paper it sounds like something bonkers that I would love. But there's something intangible about it. And I feel the same way about, like, Welcome to Night Vale, where on paper I'm on board, but there's just something in the execution that it, I can't quite articulate. It just doesn't do it for me. Oh, I love Welcome mm. to Night Vale. Um, the, Grant Morrison's just... Because he'll do All-Star Superman. Which is wonderful. Which is brilliant. Amazing in every way, yes. Best and Superman And he'll story. do Wii 3, which is wonderful. And yeah. he'll do um, Seven Soldiers, which is amazing. And yeah, then, but there's some stuff he does where, and having read some of his notes on things, like I read some of his notes for Arkham Asylum, and it's one thing that he does that pisses me off and it fucking shits me to tears, is um, his, he, he will do this stuff that's very surreal and very odd, and Invisibles is a really good example. The problem with Invisibles is that it's, there's this message in it that's in code, and the only way to read the code is if you're Grant Morrison. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> See, now that's, that's something that you, would say to me that it would be impo- inaccessible, but it sounds like it's a good enough yep. series that you actually would want to read it. Oh, it is. Yeah, um, he did a thing called Sea Guy, which is like that. It's really, you know, fuck knows what it's about. But I don't know. It's I read really it. captivating. Yeah. Um, but yeah... I read the notes to Arkham Asylum, and he's sitting there, and he's going, yeah, and this has to do with, you know, um, medieval harvest cycles and stuff like that. And you go, <laughs> oh, okay, now that you've explained what it means, I can see what you were trying to do, but there is no way that I would figure out what you were trying to do based on what's on the page. <laughs> because not everybody is you, Grant Morrison. <laughs> yeah. Weird, weird thing there. That's- uh, this is a thing. Yeah, I'll that's give, the thing about the uh, point of advantage that I will give to Alan Moore, who is a bit of a spooky, cool yeah. wizard dude, who does a lot mm. of hash and worship snakes. But when he writes a weird story like that, he at least approaches it from a perspective. It, the person reading it is probably not exactly like him. Yes, and he tries to at least translate Alan Moore into English. And give yep. you an idea of what he means. Sometimes he'll do it too elaborately, but at least he tries to do mm. it. And and some and at least he'll give you something that you can actually kind of put your own meaning to. You know, it's like e- e- even if you even if you don't get what Alan Moore meant, 
you can still derive something out of the experience. You know, even if even if your interpretation doesn't correlate with his, it's still a worthwhile experience and a worthwhile interpretation. Yeah, I just I look at a lot of the stuff that um, Brett Morrison's doing, and it becomes really frustrating for that very reason. Because when he did the new Fifty Two Superman, I was on board just from the image. I like the idea of hey, that's weird. Mm. He's dressed in blue jeans and a t-shirt, and it's Grant Morrison, yep. and he did in my mind the best Superman story I'd ever read. Which is really hard to top because most of the big Superman stories tend to be just rehashing his origin in a new, interesting way, but not mm. really telling stories about him already being Superman. And I really love that about All Star. Is it does what I think he was trying to do with Batman—that sort of all unified theory of Superman—and he was much more yep. successful about it. And there was just this completely uninsecure, or I guess you could say completely secure, to, to scratch the double tilde off the beginning of that word, the uh, completely secure mm. idea of just a character who's just so good and optimistic and sees the best in mm. people, and knowing that makes a character interesting, not boring. Mm -hmm. Especially because yeah. everybody is snarky nowadays. That That's what I love about Chris Evans as Captain America. That he's mm. the odd man out by being the good guy, yeah. not by being the one who's motivated mm. by trauma or revenge or just likes being really snarky and dark about things. Well, and mm. All-Star Superman is great because it gets around the whole Superman is inherently uninteresting thing because he can solve all his problems. Mm. I like. I got into a conversation with a friend of mine the other day who was like, oh, I don't think Superman's very interesting. And I'm like, tell me why. And in my head I'm going... I know the three reasons you're going to give me because they're the same reason that nobody has ever picked up a Superman comic. Give me. It's like, oh, you've mm. read one? No, you don't get to make that determination. You have to fucking, mm. like, dig in, educate yourself. And then if you don't like Superman, that's fine. But, like, don't read three Superman contexts and the, uh, co or comics and then look at the pop culture ideal and think, mm. oh, well, he's not an ideal character. And I think Grant Morrison, that's the problem. He wants to get at the meta of everything he's doing. Mm. He doesn't look at it like, how can I tell an interesting Superman? It's how can I do a grand unified theory of Superman? See how that, that to me is like the, this is, this is what bothers me sometimes about rock music. Hold, hold on for a second. Hold on for a second. <laughs> People who who learned guitar, especially electric guitar, what they, what they don't want to do is they don't want to create an awesome melody to a song that's really catchy they want to be the guy who everyone plays for and then at the middle of the song he gets to to step forward on the stage with his guitar and go and you know what uh it really isn't interesting for most people in fact it's it's the sort of thing that becomes not interesting for anyone except for yourself well yeah everybody wants to be Jimi hendrix or alex lifeson or or you know uh, those guys. Nobody wants to be like third guitar and lover boy. Yeah. Right? Nobody wants to, it's 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 really like Paul McCartney is the weird one because he was the bass player that everybody knew, but like right. nobody like George Harrison was rhythm guitar, right? I can guarantee you that people mm. weren't. He, he, we all know that he was not as popular as John or Paul. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, like nobody wants to be like, I'm going to be a rhythm guitarist when I grow up. It's, Everybody's uh, like, I'm mm. going to have the hot licks, motherfucker! Yeah. yeah the, but the problem is that the whole song can't just be hot. Yeah, licks, yeah, right? exactly. You need the rhythm guitar. <laughs> there <in> needs <laughs> an actual a spine to this thing. It's kind of like nobody lines up to say that like, Europe is their favorite band. <laughs> but if I start humming the final countdown, gonna... I guarantee people <laughs> yes. will start humming along. Exactly. People don't mm. remember that stuff, and I think that's the thing with with 
Grant Morrison is that frequently he forgets to have a song with his noodling. Yes. (laughs) And, Mm. you know, it's not enough to just... It's like... I'm just going to break down with all these analogies here, but (laughs) if you guys have ever taken, like, a community college philosophy class, there is always that guy in the class who isn't there to contribute to conversations. He isn't there because he wants to learn anything. He only raises his hands because he wants to fucking show off. Yes. And show mm. people how smart he is. <laughs> but I guarantee you that guy always misses the fact that everyone rolls his eyes when he does and, it. And he starts every sentence with, according to, dot, yeah. dot, dot. <laughs> it's like you want to be the teacher, yeah. but you don't want to have to do the work to be the teacher. You just kind of want to be those two yeah. old guys from the fucking Muppet show. <laughs> this is the weird thing. Uh, Waldorf and Stadler. Yes. Yes. names. Um, who doesn't want to be the two guys? From yeah, the who doesn't show? want to be Waldorf? Like, that's my whole. That's the whole concept of me is wanting to be Waldorf and Stadler. <laughs> but I think that uh, it's obvious to me that Grant Morrison cares. I think that he mm. just gets he gets wrapped up in it. You know, he he really. Mm. It's odd to me the things that kind of cling on to him, but it's not. Mm. You know, he's. I tend to think think about things in film analogies because movies tend to be my thing. And, you know, you can look at, like, um, not everybody's going to appreciate, like, a Fellini movie because they're weird. Mm. All right? But it's not just that they're weird. It's that it's all too easy to miss an important cultural context in which those movies were made. You know? It's very similar to, like, going back and reading Crisis on Infinite Earths or reading, like, that... Denny O'Neill, not even before Denny O'Neill, but like Carmine Infantino stuff and Neil Adams stuff from mm. the 60s in, in D.C. Like you're mm. missing. Uh, it's very easy to write those off as just corny. And I'm always like, no, give yourself the cultural context. Like think about what mm. was going on in the 1980s in comic books and then think about Crisis on Infinite Earths. This is insane. Yeah, this is fucking mm. insane. This is 40 years of continuity. They're trying to to take all the knots out of and put into one smooth line. That's a huge mm. undertaking but for what, 12 what, issues. But wouldn't you say, though, that at least the uh, motivation behind doing what they did for Crisis and Infinite Earths was probably laudable? Like, the idea of wanting to not have it all collapse under the weight of its total absurdity of all the the, the swords poking through the sack, so to speak. Like, just to, to smooth all that out and be like, this is one narrative you can follow without having have read 20 years worth of comics. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think but that's... They had- they had good intentions. And I think Morrison does sure too. Yeah. <laughs> I think he really does. Yeah. I think he's like, this is going to make people understand this character more. And it's like, no, because none of us have time to read the entire Batman back catalog. Or, like, mm. We don't have that time, dude. But I, I think the fact is that we had been doing little crises on Infinite Earths for decades. Yeah. The difference is, yeah. is that we didn't stop everything and have a story. If we didn't like a piece of continuity, we just ignored it. Ignore, yes, exactly. It just went away. That if you didn't want to have Ace the Bat Hound in the Bat Cave, you just didn't write Ace the Bat Hound in the Bat Cave, and you just made mm. a, an effort to just never mention him. Well, yeah, continuity. Mm. I think and concerns about continuity is very much something that came out of the modern age. Yeah, people in the Silver Age mm. didn't give a fuck that like. Superman got shot in last week's episode or that Lewis Lane was now green or that fucking Superman was married to his cousin, right? Like, <laughs> that we're, and then that's, wasn't in the next news issue. to me. <laughs> oh, dude, totally. That's crazy. Well, Superman in the 60s in the, in the Silver Age is pretty much like um, 
guys, we got Superman into this thing. How are we going to get him out? Oh, we'll just give him that power. Just, just get, he can make himself smaller. Mm. He no, he can't make himself smaller. He can create, he can create smaller versions of himself. <laughs> <laughs> that's not crazy, right? Whatever, he's Superman. Yeah, he's Superman, right? He's super. That's right there in his name, Super. You can, you can just do that. So. <sighs> But I think... Silver Age Superman was so fucking mental. Yeah, he really it's was. It so was... crazy. Uh, it's like uh, Alan Moore and uh, Grant Morrison without the sense of irony. And yeah. it's just so serious. And that's what makes it so... It's like, yeah, of course, Superman has a lion head now. Yeah, of course. You know, like... Yeah. He's the king of the ant people. Well, actually, <laughs> you know who was responsible for that was Otto Binder. Um, after um, DC sued... Uh, force it out of existence um, over Captain Marvel. Right. They grabbed Otto Binder, who was the main writer on Captain Marvel, and brought him into Superman to spice up the the title. Right. That's where all the crazy stuff. There was actually a cool um, Superman Silver Age action figure set. I don't know if you saw this. Mm. That it had Superman, and he was drawn the way that what is his name? Is it Kurt Swan would draw him? Yes. Uh, I think it was a Wayne Boring A Wayne Boring one, one. with the really thick, Big, yeah, the really thick abdomen. Yeah, he's like a heavy-chested guy. Okay, yeah. And he came with yeah. all these alternate versions of hands and heads and things like that, so that he could be the weird alternate Supermans that you saw in all those stories, mm. and it had the lion head, it had the one where he's a king of the ant people. I didn't make up those examples, by the way, where he had, like, <laughs> the big bug eyes and antenna, and you could just swap them out and just go, oh, okay, he's in that whacked-out story now. And I was like, that is a really cool action figure. That sounds amazing. And you just pull his head off and put the other head on there. Mm. Um, you, I, you know, I don't want to be the Debbie Downer here. We've <laughs> talked a lot about Batman and Superman, but I think uh, that I, because I haven't, I don't think I've even talked to you about it since the last Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice mm. hardcore dark dark nine eleven e trailer that uh, <laughs> I don't know what they're I don't know what they're calling this movie anymore. It looks like they the Zack Snyder wants us to continually revisit the trauma of us watching thousands of people die in collapsing buildings over and over again because he did it last Superman movie and he's doing it again the same one again mm. um mm. uh how did uh, uh you know what do you guys think of that thing? i think i still don't want to see it yeah <laughs> i think that's Whoa, what it what is what are you guys talking about <laughs> no i'm with you i don't want to see it either i, I, I'm, this I actually, thing. i'm sorry go ahead paul i, I heard I, dissenting view. i do i do not want to see it oh okay never mind well, go ahead Zack snyder Zach's, the first Zack Snyder film I saw was uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake, and I really liked it. And everything I've seen that he's touched since then has been shit. Agreed. And it, that puzzled me because I'm going, how is he capable of producing one good film and everything else was terrible? And I recently found out that James Gunn, who did Slither and Guardians of the Galaxy, wrote the script for Dawn of the Dead. So I'm just going to huh. give him all of Dawn of the Dead. That works for me. It's all on James Gunn. Wow. Um, because Zack Snyder, my, my capsule review is usually Zack Snyder is a fucking idiot. <laughs> I don't think he has the faintest idea how to tell a story. I don't think he understands characters. I don't think he understands plot. He I think he's like a dumber Michael Bay. He is. <laughs> he's that. That's oh, quotable right he, there. He really is. And oh my god, I don't. I you just you took all the words out of my head by saying that, and it's like it's absolutely true. I think the only thing he kind of understands is a lot of slow motion. Um, I, he reminds me a lot of somebody who's a bit not really introspective, not incredibly intelligent. Yep. But he tries really fucking hard. 
he clearly I is think... trying to make art, but he just doesn't have enough in his brain. But he's making the best movie he possibly can. It's the same reason mm. he just didn't understand Watchmen, is that there's a yeah. misunderstanding of the source material that is incredibly shallow and surface level that mm. he doesn't understand. So, yeah, he's going to make Rorschach an insp- uh, uh, ins- uh, aspirational character. He's going to do things like, yeah, Superman is cool because he can knock buildings down and forget the fact that people should be happy when Superman shows up rather than running in terror mm. from shaky cam and dust, <laughs> mm. which we need more 9-11 in our lives. Um, Mm. Jesus Christ. Um, but it's just, it's fucking depressing. And I look at that, and mm. there's a lot of people who want me to give the movie a chance, but I also want to remind them that this is a sequel to another movie that made a lot of money, and there is no reason for them to change the way they do things. Yeah. Not only yep. that, but it's clear they're trying to uh, do a, a, a hyper-fast transition to making a Justice, a Justice League, League movie. movie. Yeah. Um, and it's totally yeah. clear by what they're doing. And... I was skeptical, seriously skeptical about Marvel being able to pull it off, and they clearly did. But com- but looking at the two, it's clear that Marvel knows how to tell uh, superhero stories to a big audience and make it a big tentpole kind of movie, and still retain the fun and the earnestness of it. And I think I I don't know how many people you have that are actually really defending Man of Steel and what that did to the character. I've I've not heard anyone to make a convincing case, at least. It's not a good tentpole movie. I mean, no. what, did, what did the Marvel Cinematic Universe start out with? It started out with Iron Man, which was fun Man. and a huge fucking hit, and really dropped a bomb in the middle of the nerdosphere on the internet. People still make Iron Man, Tony Stark jokes in memes and in fan oh. art and all sorts of things. I don't see anybody doing anything nearly like that with Man of Steel. I, I think mm. the sad thing is that Man of Steel is very much a production of its time. I I didn't mm. hate Man you mean of Steel. Right now? Yes. Well, that's <laughs> okay. and that's the thing. But like, so I'm of the I am of the Christopher. I am firmly I am firmly in the Christopher Reeve Superman era. Right. That Me too. Thing. Christopher mm. Reeve is my Superman. But and I went and saw Man of Steel because I. I wanted to believe that after Superman returns that maybe for once I would get a little return on my investment of, of my Superman fandom. And I didn't hate it. I, I won't, I will mm. say that I have problems with it. I definitely have problems with it, but my problems with it were not other people's problems with it. Um, mm. I, I think that the way that Jonathan Kent died was remarkably poorly written and mm-hmm. stupid. Wait, how did he die? I don't even remember. In a remember. fucking tornado. Oh, oh, yeah. Don't use your powers, Clark, because people might see you when we <laughs> right. have a perfectly right, fucking right. serviceable death that's great because it's something that Superman can't fucking use his powers you, to stop anyways. Yeah. yeah. Why yeah. would you change that? That is such a poignant mm. fucking thing. And it doesn't... It's a lot yep. less... It's like... It's so stupid. And the thing is, though, is that... 15 minutes earlier in that film, I'm almost in tears because Pa Kent is like, you'll always be my son. And I thought that was such a great moment. And it was such such a fucking mm. powerful part of the Superman mythos is being accepted, right? Like, regardless mm. of where he's from, Pa Kent loves Clark. And, and I just, that movie is so back and forth for me. There's so many things that I love. And then there's so many opportunities where I'm just like, what the, f- what, what was going on here? Did you need somebody mm. in the fucking writing room to just hit you in the head with a ruler? 
Is that like, Goyer? Is it yeah, Goyer? It's, 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 Goyer. it's David Goyer. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's also that Goyer. It's also Nolan producing is, I think, uh, a huge yeah. mistake. Yeah. I think, you know... They I'm, have one series of movies, the Batman ones, that make them reliably a shitload of money. Yeah. So they've just decided that the only way to do their movies is that, to make all of them dark. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's good for the character or not. I'm so happy that that, uh, that, that tendency has not invaded the, uh, the animated shows as well. I was just watching the last night with Elliot. I was watching sections of the one of the Batman Superman team up shows. I don't remember which one it is. It has um, Super Girl, Power Girl, and some little genius kid. And I can't remember what it was, but it's those. It oh was, yeah, yeah. Fu- it was enemies. fucking hilarious. It was lighthearted. It was goofy. Mm-hmm. It had Lex Luthor in a giant kryptonite like mecha suit, um, and then and then Batman and Superman teaming up in the end, where uh, uh, Batman has to fly a. Batman slash Superman giant mecha into space to stop an asteroid from coming and destroying the planet. And I was like, I'm glad Ooh. that it didn't invade everything. That the that, that sort of like Nolanization didn't pervade everything that DC mm. is putting out. But that's what yeah. you said. Everything is made better by a giant robot that is half Batman, half Superman. <laughs> that's absolutely true. <laughs> I don't I think that is the truest thing that has ever been said. And he's wearing yeah. half a Batman mask, which didn't is always cool. Socrates say that? I'm pretty sure Socrates said <laughs> Everything is made better. So uh, I wanted to talk about something before we left today, and it was something that I have been stewing with for a while. I talked to you on the phone about this, Casey, earlier. But um, our friends over at the Film and Water podcast and Dead Both and Spies, which is a Star Wars podcast, this is Rob Kelly and Ryan Daly, we're having a conversation Mm -hmm. about Return of the Jedi. Oh, yeah. Talking about the Ewoks and their use in that movie, and <laughs> this is the biggest tangent we could take. Yeah, this is the last couple of hours. Oh, so they were talking mm. about the fact that yeah. when we first have our heroes meet uh, the Ewoks, the Ewoks are trying to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the movie, we see the Ewoks uh, playing the empty stormtrooper helmets like drums. <laughs> Did they eat those those stormtroopers? <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say yeah. The yep. answer is they yes. Fucking ate the stormtroopers. <laughs> Were they telling like rebel pilots, okay, eat that, but not that over there? And yeah. this was leading me into thinking about something that just led me down a rabbit hole of just nerd. You're not supposed to ask that question. Type bullshit. I mean, it's the stuff that mm-hmm. I'm injecting realism into absurdist fun space opera adventure. And my question is, how did the Ewoks perceive the Battle of Endor? Because why are they fighting alongside the Rebels? Because among the Rebels is their golden god who has descended from the heavens, who they worship. I can't help but think that the Ewoks are fighting in a holy war along on the battlefield with their golden sky god. (laughs) And they are defeating monsters who are in giant walking monsters who shoot energy beams and are building. And then at the end of this fucking battle, this cosmic battle against the forces of evil where the gods are involved, the fucking sky explodes. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a fair assessment. (laughs) So I'm like, there's going to come a point. And we had this discussion. We were talking about Star Trek, the next generation and how you responsibly um, do first contact with another species who's not as technologically advanced. And we're getting into some serious Clark's Third Law stuff. And if you don't know Clark's <laughs> Third Law, 
It's the idea that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm. There's going to come a point where the Ewoks just get see so many people coming from space, and their culture evolves to the point that they understand that these aren't the gods. These aren't magical people. These are just a bunch of people, and that when they thought they were killing and dying by the score for their gods... It was just a bunch of guys. <laughs> What's going to happen to their culture that then? abandoned them after they yes. were done? <laughs> that we just left, and essentially, maybe they left a ray gun or something or some debris, and it has the same abilities cargo cults that have existed throughout the twentieth century. <laughs> what kind of sense of betrayal are these Ewoks going to have? But then, how many Ewoks do we actually see die on screen? Like you only see like. I mean, maximum maybe ten die on screen. That's a pretty good fucking number for a holy war. Yeah, there was one that like falls over after getting shot. And goes, <laughs> and he's like smoking. Yes, there there are a few, and there's a couple that get shot and they kind of fly off into the thing. But still, I mean, ten. <laughs> there's so <laughs> bad. There's a generation of Ewoks with, like, missing limbs and shit. I, I just think, though, that as far as the, their sort of quality of life, it's clear that the Empire had came and colonized that planet, and they clearly had no plans to, like, displace them. They set up, like, a big Death Star as their, as their moon or whatever, right, in their orbit, and they had a few, like, energy bases on there or whatever. But it's clear that the Empire just didn't go in and exterminate them all, right? They just let them alone. They're like, mm. they're primitive species they can't hurt us with sticks and stones and ropes spoiler alert Mm. they they, They they can can. can. Uh, and they were they were obviously they were not going to fuck with them they totally weren't come the rebels the rebels have completely flipped their shit upside down (laughs) they destroyed their houses they killed uh, maybe 10 maybe 100 maybe maybe 10 maybe 10 ewoks yeah who knows who knows uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think running into the rebels is the best thing to ever happen to them, for no, sure. It's clearly not. <laughs> I just, I, it's, it's insane. I'm, I'm thinking about this and just how their lives are irrevocably different, and just how, yeah, the empire left them alone. But it's kind of funny that they, they overestimate, they underestimate what the Ewoks can actually do to them, and it just sort of hit mm. me the weird parallels between this movie and First Blood, the first Rambo movie. <laughs> yeah. Where it's yeah, there, just, are lo- there are lots of traps set in the forest for the bad guys to step on. That's for sure. The Ewoks, and it, they're both allegories about Vietnam. No, no way. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> kind of <laughs> yeah. the Vietnam. <laughs> that oh man, oh gee, I mean, getting killed by the Ewoks is way worse. I'd rather get shot with a red laser than have a bunch mm. of them hover over me with sharpened sticks and poke me until I'm dead. What about the stormtrooper that gets beaten to death? Yes. <laughs> They're just like n- Nobody fucking makes any mention of these Ewoks, these cute little teddy bear creatures, fuck, bludgeon this guy to death <laughs> with like, rocks, and they're not big rocks. Or, it had to have taken a or while. getting clotheslined on a fucking speeder. That's oh, gotta Jesus. hurt. <laughs> yeah, right? The guy in the walker that gets hit from both sides with logs. Oh, God. <laughs> Those are some horrible fucking deaths. At least you get shot with a blaster pretty much anywhere on your body, it's, and Star Wars physics basically say you're dead. Yes. Unless it's a shoulder, then you're okay. You get a little well, burn. If it's a shoulder and you're a good guy, yeah. or not yep. partial to the plot, then you're okay. If you're just a stormtrooper, mm. then you get hit anywhere, and that's game over. Yeah, you're just kind of gone. <laughs> I, it's just there's something in the plasteel armor that just, like, it just... Self-destruct. Yeah. Just, just melt yep. everything inside into a goo. Your Ooh. life support is actually tied to the outer shell. <laughs> yes, it, <is>. <laughs> <laughs> it just cuts off your breathing if you get hit with anything. It's it's true. It's true. 
I have two responses to this weird conversation. One is, I really want to see a remake of the two Ewok movies, but with flesh-eating Ewoks. And I want to <laughs> oh my god, them. yes, please! I want, a, I want a trauma Ewok film in the style of, you know all those Gremlins knockoffs that came out in the 80s? Yep. Oh. Yep. Oh, yeah, where it's just like these, these things that look like cute teddy bears, but will fucking kill and eat you. <laughs> oh, what are they called? And, god. Is it Ghoulies? Uh, yes. No, Ghoulies yeah, was one. Ghoulies. It was, mm, there were furry gonna... ones, too, and they made a... Oh, yeah, uh, I can't troll? remember the... There's Troll uh, 1. The f- Critters. 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 That's what it was. Yeah. Critters, yeah. My God, the but fact yeah. that we were able to rattle off like four or five of them, that was a mm, thing oh, they for were a while. fucking all over oh, yeah. the shop, yeah. Oh, my fucking God. But, uh... And the other question I need to know is how does Wilfred Brimley fit into all of this? <laughs> oh my god. Well, I mean, Wilfred Brimley is pretty much the source of the force, isn't he? Like, yeah. That's what I always thought. His last name is Metachlorians, I guess. <laughs> what are Metachlorians? I don't know what you're talking about. I have not. What are they? I know it's weird to first talk about Star Wars that The Force Awakens just came out a couple days ago. I have not seen it, but. I have neither. And neither. I'm going to make one prediction that I guarantee is true. The word Metachlorians is not said in that movie. I guarantee it. Yeah. If J.J. Abrams wanted to be the biggest troll in the world, he would draw all the references from Star Wars Episode One. No, there is a scene when when uh, Jar Jar Binks walks out and then does a break dance and then and then dances and then no, no, that would be hot. and then gets stepped on <laughs> yes. by an. Is it? Is it? The AT-ATs are the big ones, right? The yes. STs are the small ones. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's what he gets stepped a, on. A, a, a Godzilla meets Bambi moment. Yes. Yeah, so that would be some yep. catharsis for us, I think. Yeah, definitely. I got that Lego in uh, Lego Star Wars Episodes One. You, I just, I spent, and I am not exaggerating here. Almost, I spent hours just running the Jar Jar Lego figure <laughs> off of cliffs <laughs> into anything I could that would kill him, over and over and over again. And I am unashamed. It was awesome. <laughs> I don't even know why that character made it off the page because, uh, because of George Lucas. <laughs> It's, yeah. I mean, you Merchandising. just, all you have to do is make uh, just the tiniest bit of internet research, which is usually worthless, mm. but in this case would be incredibly illuminating to learn that kids fucking hate those characters. Yes, they do. They don't like mm. Snarf. Snarf is not their favorite Thundercat. They're not really a fan mm. of Orko or any of these other characters that were injected into a lot of 1980s kids cartoons. Scrappy-Doo being the patron saint of Change the Channel. <laughs> people hate Scrappy-Doo and there's no way that you'd have to work really hard to make that character beloved and Mm. whatever that way is and I'm sure it's a difficult, dangerous path to a likable Jar Jar type character um, I don't know if George Lucas has it in him to do it I don't know if most filmmakers do I think the droids are actually the best example of a fun uh, side character Mm. but the thing that sort of makes them different is that they're fucking useful and they're relevant to the plot yes as opposed Mm. to in jar jar's case being a complete impediment to the plot um or in the droids case in the as you always say in the trequels is that they just generally just tend to stand around and are not given anything to do yeah they're there just to have a connection to the the movies nobody even talks to mm. them they just stand there and they just go around their business the only thing they ever say to them is wait here are two well, literally the only we're talking about movies in which the only mm. literally the only good thing is the riff tracks that were <laughs> that that that, insp- that were inspired by them. Yeah, I mean, mm. 
they're they are uh, it's a treatise and how not to to make to not how not to treat your fucking uh your property how to not make a movie how to get poor performances out of actors that are incredible actors yeah it's just I went and saw the Phantom Menace six times because the first time I saw it, I was like, that was great. And then I was like, wait, and then I was like, I'm going to go see it again. And then the second time I saw it, I was like, wait a minute. And I kept going back, trying to convince myself that I was wrong, that those movies were not, that that movie was not awful. But it, it's, I was watching something on YouTube today and it was like, they opened the goddamn movie about space ninjas with laser swords with a trade meeting. Yeah. That's really mm. all you need to know. I, I just hope that, that the combination of the Red Letter Media reviews, as well as now moving on to a new set of movies, and an in, in indefinite number of movies now, will hope sort of heal that wound. And so we can just, like, mm. we can just, like, just let it rest. We yes. can just let that chapter be over. Um, and from the early mm. returns, it sounds like... Um, it's, it. a, a, it's a capable job, um, and uh, I'm excited to see it. I still am very excited it, to see it. It sounds like it's a fun space adventure with people uh, running and fighting and doing cool things and equipping back and forth and things exploding and just well, a general and, sense of swashbuckling and fun. Giving, and giving an appropriate mm. connection, appropriately concise connection to the characters from the old trilogy and not sort of exploiting them which is essentially what they did with the prequels um i i think the only piece of the new sort of post uh lucas jj abrams verse that i really i don't know if i want a move star wars movie every calendar year forever and ever and ever i don't know i mean Mm. maybe this is maybe this is something that we uh we've sort of abandoned in our in the internet age with binge watching and stuff where we just like we're just we're just like that heavy metal kid with a bag of sugar we just we just want more I think that things are best when they're rare and not when there's mm. there's sure fit. You Where know? you can savor the movie a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that was always the thing, and I've gotten this from... That, that's why being, actually, that's why being right now, to me, is like the... the I love this moment, and this moment's going to go away, because it's the moment before this whole thing is blown up and is opened up and we know what it is. And it's actually kind of awesome mm. to be right here. It's anticipation. Yeah. yeah. Like, when was the last time you felt that? Yeah. Especially about a Star Wars thing. Yeah. yeah. I, haven't I mean... Been, oh. I think uh, the last time I felt that was in the late 90s. (laughs) I felt that for five minutes before... Well, okay. I felt it for a few days before I saw The Phantom Menace for the second time. I kind of of love where we are right now. It's it's, Yeah, that's all I can say. It's kind of cool. It's not a bad place to be. And um, in a lot of ways, the same thing the moments before Force Awakens comes out, where people are just excited. And the same time is the space between movies. And if it's something like two to three years... The same thing happened with the Harry Potter books, and I think this is something that a lot of younger fans are going to miss out on, which is that when you are reading those in real time and you have to wait a couple years before you get the next one, you savor it a bit more. It's kind of like keeping something in your mouth a little bit longer before swallowing and shoveling more in. Yes. Mm. And I think that knowing that there are probably clues in the last thing you got to what the next thing will be and anticipating and making predictions and trying to guess and saying, this is what I hope will happen. This is what I hope will happen. Mm. And I think this is going to be important later. And it felt like they were touching on this and I think they might pick it up later and, Mm. and having, this is what nerds do. And, um, getting a little bit of time to speculate and have fun between the, this and the next movie is some of the most fun you can have with this stuff. And mm. 
when you just get it all right away, I think you lose something of that. Oh, absolutely. And mm. I like getting to that point. I read the Game of Thrones, the George R. R. Martin Song of Ice and Fire books, and I cruised through the first three because that's all that was out when I first started reading them. And after mm. I was done, I had all this time with other fans to digest what it is that I had just read. And that is some of the most fun conversations I have speculation conversations. And I don't need the movie studio to help me by pumping out all of this stuff a year in advance of the movie coming out. The fans can do it on our own. Yeah. Give us one trailer Mm. and just leave it be. And we'll fill in the rest of our time because God knows if there's something we can do is talk a bunch of nonsense about nerdy shit. About 60 oh, seconds worth of something. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah. It's like the Zabruder mm. film. <laughs> we just dive into that it's over amazing. and over. Right. Well, and I think there's... I, I, I'm super excited because I my mom went and saw Star Wars when she was pregnant with me. I saw Empire and Jedi in the theater when on their initial runs. Wow. And... I will get to take my 14-year-old daughter to go and see The Force Awakens, so it'll be her first Star Wars movie. Oh, wow. That's so, exciting. Have, yes. have you have you deliberately denied yeah. her episode one oh, through God. three? Oh, God. Well, when she was a kid, she saw it, but I don't think she remembers it very well. <laughs> hopefully it so wasn't like, it, it just nested there as some form of trauma. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. hopefully. That's what I'm hoping. But this will be the first time we, we will go to see uh, – this will be her first theater Star Wars That's experience. That's great. So I'm like – Fuck yes. That's, That's pretty cool. That's great. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah, I'm stoked. I'm super stoked. So if J.J. Abrams drops the ball, game over. <laughs> <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at radioversusthemartians.com and send us your feedback at info at radioversusthemartians.com.